as we figure out how to get uh, Chris Harrington of the Daily Memphian um, up on stage here, we'll get started. Uh, this is Colin Shots. I'm Seth Partnow, uh, joined today by, uh, actually this time, uh, we tried to get him on with Adam <laughs> Mares, uh earlier this week, uh, Eric Name of The Athletic, uh, uh, my, my co-Milwaukeean, is, it, it, is, is here. Um, and Chris Harrington of the Daily Memphian, as I said, um, wh- I wanted to talk to multiple people about this. Uh, losing in a playoff series is so final, so for a team with expectations, so catastrophic that how you react and, and come back from that and figure out what to do next is pretty important. And I think for both of the, these teams, the Bucks and the Grizzlies, um, it is complicated by by the fact that the losses were heavily inf- influenced by by injuries, um, so what then to make of what we saw, and how do how do these teams go forward? So Eric, since you're on stage, kind of start with you. Sure. I mean, it, it's funny. I've I've watched a lot of the reaction to the Bucks losing. I've read a lot of the think pieces. Um, and you know, I gotta say from here in Milwaukee, watching the Bucks the entire season, um, I don't know if I believe anyone saying the league has passed the Bucks by, you know, it it seems like having the two time MVP, the guy that's been voted unanimously first team all NBA for the last four seasons, I feel like again, this could be absolutely crazy talk, Seth. Um, I feel like they're going to be fine. You know? It's weird. It's weird that when you have the best player in the league, you're going to be fine going forward. It, it, it's just, you know, and especially when that guy is seven feet tall, insanely versatile, great on offense and defense. Um, I don't think any basketball league is passing the team that has that guy by. And it's been funny to me to watch all of these stories where it's like, oh, the Bucks have to be able to do this and they have to be able to do that. And they were deficient in these areas in this series. And every single time I'm like, okay, um, Chris Middleton does those things. Whether it's offense or defense, whether it's you saying that the Bucks need to figure out a small ball lineup, oh, they're six foot seven wing that creates an offense and defense can cover multiple positions and also create shots. I think he'd be pretty helpful in a small ball lineup. Okay. Well, you know, they need more offense. Okay. The guy that is their pick and roll hub as a ball handler might be helpful for all that. So it's just been, it's been really strange for me to watch a lot of outside opinion about this team be centered around this idea that, uh, you know, Bucks won that championship last year, but the league is really passing them by. Uh, I don't know what league we're talking about. I, so, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll get back to this in a second. I would, I would say there's a more moderated critique that perhaps the the Bucks have aged and or depth out of being a, being a top contender. That's a different discussion, but we can we can talk about that in a second because I wanted to to go to Chris now. Um, you know the Bucks are in this this weird situation where they have to figure out, or not a weird situation, a fairly common situation. Are we still good enough? The Grizzlies uh, are, on the other hand, 
you know, have the opposite problem is, are we good enough yet? What do we have to do to get there? So, you know, and, and that's, of course, complicated by you lose John Morant for a big chunk of the you lost that that both hurts you greatly in that series, but also makes your team more difficult to evaluate. So um, what say you, Chris Harrington? I was saying, I think the Bucks are an interesting comp, a hopeful comp for the Grizzlies in the sense that obviously defensively Giannis Antetokounmpo and John Moran are very different players and one's a defensive solution, one's a defensive problem. But offensively, you know, the way they attack the rim, two of the best paint scorers in the league, they're sort of, you know, a foundation of what you build your offense around. And they're both stars. Oop. We lost Chris for a second there. Um Eric, while we're getting Chris back, you want to you, you want to jump in with your your thoughts on sort of that comparison between, uh, you know, the the construction of the two teams based built on a, you know, a, a dynamic paint score. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting to watch John Morant uh, just operate. Um, there's not a lot of guys in the league that can get to the paint at will in the same ways that he can and. When you wall him up, it seems like you have him in the exact spot that you want, and he can still find his way, you know, through around, around it, through the air. It, it is really kind of impressive to think about just the at his at Giannis's size. It makes sense, right, that he's just going to be this matchup problem, and be able to get to the rim whenever he wants because he's like the modernized version of Shaq, but. Moran is this just, I mean, supernova flying through the air where it doesn't even make sense most of the time how he's able to get to the rim or how he's able to avoid defenders or finish through contact. It, it is kind of just, to me, incredible that he's figured so many things out with such nuance uh, so early in his career. And yeah, when, when you're looking at building an offense around that, uh, being able to score at the rim is very important to any NBA offense and especially any NBA offense that has any, uh, any aim of being efficient, like to have that guy makes it pretty easy on the offensive end at all times. I think the, the, the parallels, I mean, obviously you need to do some projecting of some of the, the better players on the Grizzlies, but there's, I think there are some similarities, uh, in where the bucks were, I don't know, would you say three years ago? Um, probably um, pre and early Mike Budenholzer tenure, where it's like, okay, we've got piece, we've got like the main piece, but the stuff around it, we need to figure out what works, who that is, who we can keep, who we need to improve upon, and that's yeah. a that's a that's a, a a good but tough spot to be. Yeah, I mean, after that that first year, that first run uh, that you guys had with Bud, uh, it was. It, I kept writing and thinking about this story as like, okay, you know, maybe they just make the whole leap in one year. They are a pretty complete team. They are a pretty complete roster. They're great defensively. They're very good offensively. Like, okay, maybe they figured all this out in one year just by changing the systems that they run on offense and defense. And then, 
you know, uh, below all of that, there was like, okay, well, Eric Bledsoe probably isn't good enough offensively. Uh, he's great defensively, but he's probably just not good enough offensively. And, okay, well, Brooke Lopez shooting a lot of threes is good, but also we need to find a way to combat teams double-teaming Giannis and building the wall and, you know, finding our way in or around it or somehow beating that. And it is, again, it's a good spot, uh, but at the same time, you know, the the success they had so early led to this insanely condensed franchise trajectory where all of a sudden the next year, some of those same inefficiencies are exploited. You, you lose in the second round to the Miami heat and all of a sudden it is good. God is Giannis going to leave is Mike Budenholzer an NBA coach? Uh, should he be fired? Should they move on from him? Is Chris Middleton even good at basketball? Uh, when they trade for Drew Holiday, it's did they do they have enough yet? Even though in in that off season, everyone said if the Nets traded for Drew Holiday, they were obviously uh, the team that would would win it all, but. As soon as the Bucks did it, it was, uh, I don't know if Drew Holly is actually good at basketball. Is he, is he that much better than Eric Bledsoe? Um, turns out he is. He's, he's quite a bit better. But it is this insane trajectory, and I'm curious to see what happens with Memphis, uh, where it turned into, this has to get done now. And if it doesn't get done now, heads are going to roll in, in year three. And it's, it's I mean, kind of something that we see happen again and again in the modern NBA with the way that players move around with the way that teams are built up and broken down in incredibly quick fashion, you know, speaking from someone here in Milwaukee, there's no Don Nelson bucks of the eighties where you can just be in the mix for seven years and try to, to break through and try to find a way and not have that work. And everyone be like, okay, we'll get them next year. Like, this is good, and we like this. There's no, You don't get to do that in the modern NBA. If you're at 50 wins and you're not having postseason success, that means you're a failure of a coach, and you need to redo everything or find everything out. And it's the same thing if you're a star player who's pumping out 50-win seasons but not having postseason success, then all of a sudden you're a fraud or, or whatever it may be. Everything moves very quickly. So it will be interesting to see how people kind of react to the the season that the Grizzlies had, which is obviously spectacular and obviously something that you think most teams would want to be building on and moving forward with. I'm curious to see how it gets treated because everything has to happen really quickly in the modern NBA. So I'll go back to I'll go back to you, Chris. Um, like I'm I'm obviously much closer with having you know worked there and still living here with sort of the reaction to the Bucks losing and and everything Eric's saying about like the catastrophic nature of and and that, that's that's usually some overreactionizing, but that doesn't mean it doesn't carry weight. How has the like what has been the the the, the Memphis um, sort of the, the the both the reaction you've seen nationally and locally? Uh, is the, are they sort of on the clock in the same way that the Bucks were 
uh, circa 2019, or is or do they still have a little bit of a luxury of of continuing kind of a slow build? The 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 purpose of doing of of, of having this conversation is is to push back a little bit against that that uh, not I mean push back, but how to how to contextualize the 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 everything is terrible kind of uh, reaction and. Okay, there are lessons. You lost. There's probably some lessons there. Like some of the lessons are all right, not getting hard. Like we were unlucky. Let's not have our best players get injured. Like that's that's certainly part of it. But at the same time, like there were some some things that you know you could. You, there's always things you could be better at. Um, and and you know, frankly, the like in the Bucks case, this is in contrast to the Grizzlies. Like there was kind of a sort of a, a hangover much of the season. Is that fair? Would you? Yeah, I, I mean it. It's it's never happened before where I've had a conversation with Giannis Antetokounmpo, and I've heard Giannis say something. And this was like a month into the season, and four of the five Bucks starters were on the COVID list or injured. And you know, Giannis is just like, yeah, I mean, I could kill myself in game twelve, but. Even you, Eric, who you know knows our entire history, is at every game, is around all the time, knows every little bit of you know arcane trivia in, in minuscule detail of this team over the last you know seven years. Even you won't remember Game Twelve. So, so what's why am I going to kill myself for Game Twelve when we don't have any of our guys? Instead, I'm just going to, you know, make the right play. Let's see if we can win it this way. And I don't need to try to break down the wall and do those things. And, and that's the first time I've ever heard Giannis say anything like that. And, and I think you could see in his play that it wasn't, you know, the, the, the blinders on, I'm going through the wall every single night. We're going to win every single game. Giannis that we've seen in other years. And, and that, to me is just not something that we've seen before and it, it speaks to kind of what the bucks were were after this season which was hey uh chris and drew played into august they had about a month off before the season started um let's just get through this thing and let's give guys time off when they need it uh and and let's just get to the playoffs and we know that we can turn it on when we need to and I, I honestly don't know if they were wrong because we just won't find out. Like we won't find out if they could have flipped the switch because Chris Middleton got hurt, and obviously that speaks to the the difficulty of defending a championship and the even greater difficulty of defending the championship following the season that just occurred where it was later into the year than normal. There was Olympics. There was all these things that condensed what would have been a short off season anyways, into the shortest off season in the history of NBA basketball. Uh, and kind of put that into a, a context that we won't know, because I do think there's a real possibility that they could have actually flipped the switch. Like with Chris Middleton, do I think they can switch more defensively if they want to? Do I think they have more offense? And can they get by the Boston Celtics? Yeah, I do think that. And when they get to the Eastern Conference Finals and play the Miami Heat, do I think the Heat have a good answer for 
Brooke Lopez being bigger than Bam Adebayo and Giannis being bigger than Jimmy Butler, playing drop coverage and not letting them get the easy points that they normally get in the same way that they did last year when they swept the Heat in the first round, yes, I do think they would do that. Now, could they beat the Warriors? I don't know. But I do think without the Middleton injury, there's a real chance that they were absolutely right. They coasted through the regular season, and they got to the NBA Finals. Sure. So let's put a pin in that because I think that there's sort of two questions. Like there's a roster question and an approach question to the Bucks. But I want to come back to Chris and, um, you know, get see you know get get his take on on the the sort of the Memphis centric reaction. Is everything terrible or are they still? Do they still have a little bit of a, of a runway? Do they have one more season of slow build before it's like? I don't know if this thing is going to work this way. We might need to make some changes. I, what I was trying to say earlier is I sort of question the premise of the of not having a long runway. I think Milwaukee has had a long runway and is still on it. And I know there's been pressure points along the way. But to me, that's why they're a good and sort of hopeful comparison for the Grizzlies. It's, it's, it's not a multi-star dynasty team. It's one star in a relatively small market who's committed long-term. They've built a good team around him, and they've been on this sort of contention plateau for multiple seasons. And to me, for most teams, where you're trying to get is this, I call it a kind of a, a, sucker, a puncher's chance plateau. Can you get to the point where if you catch the right breaks, you can break through and win a title? Uh, and Milwaukee has, has been, I think, on that plateau for multiple years. They got the right breaks one year and broke through and won a title, and they might they have a chance to do it again. I think the Grizzlies are on that plateau, and, and the goal for them is, is to be on that plateau for as long as they can be. And as young as they are, it could be a decade if they can keep it together. And to me, this is the first season they were there. And they were two-seed in the West. They advanced in the playoffs. They just didn't catch the right breaks. They caught the wrong breaks in the second round of the playoffs. Maybe next year they're the four-seed, but they catch the right breaks and they break through. I, I think – there's an up and down on this plateau and some regular seasons are better than others. And some postseasons are better than others. I think the goal is to be in the realm of teams that if you catch the right breaks, you can break through and win a title. I think the Grizzlies got there this year. I think their goal is to stay there as long as they can. I think Milwaukee has been there for four or five years. So I, on, on one hand, I completely agree with you. Cause I, I think that sort of the premise of, of having this conversation is the fact that like, yeah, being there is good. It's ridiculous that we react the way we do. At the same time, I think that your answer sort of actually answers the question in that no, that that like that that pressure isn't being like whether it's it's coming nationally or locally isn't quite the same because it was like you know twenty twenty eighteen is like okay, there's some pressure, some pressure all throughout like eighteen nineteen when you know we were pretty good. It was building and building. Then we got to. Then we got up to nothing in the conference finals and then we lost. And it's like, oh shit, like everything we have, we need to win now, 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 or else Giannis is going to leave and all these terrible things happen. Now, maybe, well, maybe well, like Morant isn't quite at that level where he's like the star, like, you know, they, we, we get, we get to talk about Donovan Mitchell instead. So maybe that helps, but I mean, yeah. Well, de- definitely the pressure changes the longer you're there without breaking through, right? And M- Milwaukee dealt with that before they broke through. Um, the Grizzlies are year one. To me, To me, this was the first year. Second year in the playoffs, but the first year you're on the plateau of actual contenders. And so you're there year one with the second youngest team in the league and, a, and your best player is 22 years old. And so, no, the pressure is not there yet. I, I think the Grizzlies feel like that if they'd caught the right breaks, they could have won a title this year. 
I think part of that is about the league. It's a different kind of league this year than it is most years at the top. Um, I, they and they feel like they didn't catch the right breaks. They don't feel like they have to go all in for next season. I think they feel like they can string this along and try to sort of more organically stay on this tier without having to feel the pressure to make bold moves to, to increase the ceiling in the short term. I think they're, they're a few years away from that. But I think they feel like they're there now in the sense that if everything breaks right, they could break through. So let's come back to that and, th- and talk about what they can do if things break right. And first, uh, I've got a question from, uh, from Mac, my, uh, my, my, my semi-producer here at Colin. Zach, what's hey, going Seth. on? Hey, Seth. How you doing? Doing well. Uh, Eric, Chris, uh, great to hear from you. Um, maybe Chris can chime in. This is more a question for Eric as far as what we were just talking about, the pressure mounting. For context, I'm a big uh, Mavs fan. And uh, so the, the, the common thought is Luca will leave us if we don't win a title uh, before, you know, midway through this next contract. And I guess I'm wondering is, is it, it, are there levels to playoff success without winning a title that you think have long-term positive value? Um, or is it kind of all or nothing? And Because and my, my perspective is Giannis went to the conference finals, had a 2-0 lead, then gets bounced in the second round, and all of a sudden there's this hysteria that he might leave, and obviously he's low, so he stays. But we just saw with Trey Young last year in Atlanta, gets to the conference finals, wins two games, and now they get the gentleman sweep in the first round, and it's as if there's been no progress at all. So I guess I'm wondering if it truly is all or nothing, or if there are levels to this sort of progress gauging. To me, I think it's levels of star. Um I just think how good Giannis is with an MVP trophy in that season that when you win an MVP, I just think everything gets ratcheted up to another level of expectation and what needs to happen or not happen. And obviously, you know, his Supermax happening in the way that it did uh, contributed to that as well. Um, so I do think like there's there's a lot of stuff that will be purely situational based. And as far as you know, how helpful getting to certain levels in the playoffs is, I think any level of playoff success is helpful. Any level of playoff experience is helpful. Like every single thing you go through along the way, uh, to me, <clears throat> is positive. Something like Giannis. I mean, I, I wish I didn't, uh, because yeah. I, I guess maybe this just means I've been so well taught in the coach speak uh, that the Milwaukee Bucks put together uh, in all their media availabilities. But I, I do think like there is each step you you figure out something new, you see something different. Um, I just think all of those things contribute to eventually figuring some things out like figuring out your way through or figuring out who you can lean on or not lean on. Um, so to me, I do think like there is, there is something to be said about progress overall. And ultimately like, do I think the Hawks getting knocked out in the first round, helped Trey young learn all that much about the playoffs this year? No, <laughs> I don't think he learned anything. And that is, uh, I don't, I'm not going to say like an organizational failure, but like that's a missed opportunity. Like the, the fact that he didn't get to go deeper into the playoffs means something. And this, I think for Luca is like a very big postseason 
where they are able to get all the way to the Western Conference Finals. And again, you know, we've seen it where like Nikola Jokic got to the Western Conference Finals and then this year did not get to go as deep in the playoffs. Like there there is levels to all of this, but I do think it is helpful for Luka to go through three playoff series this season and and essentially double his I think double his playoff experience uh from the first three years of his career combined so I do think that is incredibly helpful uh I'll add that there's like I think that's a bounce off what Eric said also I mean it's it it's a part of the pressure of the Giannis thing was he wasn't even at the podium at after game six against Toronto when the first story dropped about like what what gonna do? Um, and and you know that yeah he sure wasn't he, he was yeah. not at the podium yeah that's that's yeah. that's uh, that um, it's almost like that story was pre written um, <laughs> and, when... and uh, one one last quick hitter question I had for Chris actually was um, from the Grizzlies perspective would you say that New Orleans or Dallas is viewed as a as a bigger rival or future obstacle <laughs> Dallas obviously has probably the better player between the two teams but. Uh, New Orleans has likely the, the, the better roster after number one. Um, I mean, to answer that directly, I, I think Dallas is because of the magnitude of star that Luca is. And until Zion Williamson proves he can stay healthy, I, I think it's going to be Dallas. Although I think your point about one team has the, the greater star, the other team has the greater roster is a good point. I think the Grizzlies hope is that they sort of have both, that they have sort of threaded the needle between the two better. And I think, you know, when you, when you think about pressure in the short term, the reason I think Dallas has more pressure than Memphis, even though they have the greater star and Luca over Ja and they have gone further in these playoffs is the sense of is what they have sustainable and repeatable. Even if it's not, even, if, even if you take a dip down in, you know, in the next year, do you feel like what you have can, can float back up to the same spot? And I think. When you look at the Grizzlies, I think there's there's an internal sense, and I think probably an external one too, that a 23 year old Desmond DeBain and a 22 year 22 year old Jaron Jackson is a more sustainable foundation alongside John Morant than more of a mid 20s Dorian Finney Smith, mid 20s Jalen Brunson, both headed toward free agency sooner. I think there will be more of a of a pressure on Dallas to mix up their roster because I don't think you can feel that what they currently have is a sustainable going forward. Um, as what Memphis thinks it has. And New Orleans has that depth of talent now, but they don't have the proven star to go with it until Zion can stay healthy. So I think the reason for some optimism and patience in Memphis is the sense that I think the front office has that they sort of, they have the balance between those two pretty well in terms of having the major star and having a sustainable sort of mix around them they can go forward with. And and do you think there's a lot more room for Bane to grow specifically? I know Mavs fans just lament the fact that, you know, we kind of view him as the perfect guy next to Luca. But Bane is also, you know, he was in college for a while. How much growth do you think he has left? Well, I think what was most encouraging about Bane this season was was as the season went on, he shot well from the jump. But as the season went on, he became much more comfortable handling the ball they were forced to play a lot of lineups without a point guard. John Morant missed 25 games. They didn't have a third point guard on the roster. So when John Morant was out, their backup, their bench units did not play with a point guard. Desmond Bain was the primary ball handler. And he got increasingly comfortable in that role. The, the lineups with him as primary ball handler performed very well this season and, you know, something like a thousand possessions. So I think he showed a lot of growth, in, you know, in terms of secondary ball handling and being able to make plays. 
the other area of growth with him is less his game than how he's deployed. He actually, his three-point frequency does not match his, his effectiveness. He was, I want to say, I think it was 39th in three-point attempts per game, and he had a better percentage than all 38 players ahead of him. They can weaponize his shot more. But I think the real growth potential for the Grizzlies is Jared Jackson Jr., not Desmond Bain. So I think that's a great segue because, uh, you know, where, um, you know, you're talking about sustainability and getting to that level and figuring out from this playoff work run kind of what works, what kind of needs improvement. And there's sort of obviously there's two two avenues of that. One is internal improvements and uh, and one is personnel changes. So um, obviously Jaron Jackson is is kind of the biggest single lever. Uh, well, at least in my opinion, I guess it's not not obvious, but it's pretty pretty clearly in my view, like him hitting more of his potential consistently, um, being able to stay on the floor, being able to be effective offensively as a second player, as a second sort of option next to next to Ja. Those are in a playoff setting. Those seem like the the one of the biggest questions facing them. What does he have to do to to get some of those things right? Well, I asked Taylor Jenkins that in the team's final press conference, and the first two items he mentioned, he, first of all, he mentioned that Jaron, they, they just come out of the, the final meeting with Jaron, and they give all the players packets of sort of their off-season to-do list. He noted that Jaron had a thicker packet than anyone else on the team, that there is there's more for him to do and more expected of him going forward than anyone else. But the two things Taylor Jenkins mentioned at the top were um, not durability, but but – I'm, I'm, my mind's escaped me, the ability to play more minutes, the, the ability to handle a bigger workload, conditioning and, and that kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't just foul, his foul rate that depressed his minutes this season. It was the sense that he would wear down if you played him too long at a time. So that kind of endurance and durability was one thing they mentioned. But from a skill standpoint, he mentioned the ability to create offense for himself in the post and off the dribble. Um, even beyond the three-point shooting, which I think people have general faith is going to bounce back. It did in the playoffs. You have 38% from the, in the playoffs. They think he'll bounce back, that the 32% on the season will be an outlier. The, the bigger concern is his ability to create offense in the post, off the dribble, in the half court. Um, his game really fell apart inside the arc offensively this season, and that's got to bounce back. Um, there's a track record there. He was much better his first two years before the knee injury. And so so that is the main focus, I think, with Jaron. Is they, the Grizzlies were – a top five, top 10 offense on the season. But a lot of that was because of transition. They were not a good half-court offense. They need more answers beyond John Morant to generate half-court offense. And, and that's got to start with a much better Jaron Jackson Jr. Back to you. Um, you know, again, I, I, w- I was probably a little too close to this, but, you know, in, in the similar stage of the Bucks' growth, um, you know, there were, I think there were, I don't adjacent questions about about both Giannis and Chris Middleton where 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 they're not and and kind of how they grew into uh both bigger and sort of more playoff applicable offensive engine yeah for sure um hearing about not being able to score in the half court is um giving me real flashbacks like that is exactly what i heard about about the bucks and um, you know, to their credit, they've always been uh, a little bit better half court team than team than people tend to give them credit for. Um, I don't think they've been outside of the top ten in half court offense, uh, offensive efficiency. Excuse me, uh, under Mike Budenholzer. Uh, it, maybe this year they might have dipped 
below that for a little while. But for the most part, they've they've been solid offensively in the half court. Um, but still, they they could always get better. And yeah, I mean that was the big question was, you know, can Chris Middleton give enough of the non Giannis possessions? Can he create enough in those situations? Is he a good enough ball handler in the pick and roll? Is he a good enough creator? Um, and uh, you know, after two seasons of people thinking that he wasn't, all of a sudden in the third season, he, he was. And, uh, you know, he had, he had some massive games during their, their postseason run. And, uh, you know, they were able to scratch enough uh, offense across and, you know, win games with a historic defensive performance. And, and that, to me, is going to continue to be the, the formula going forward. So let me ask both of you, because I think, you know, the, the internal improvement card is, is always a little bit of a magic asterisk. Like, well, when this guy hits his potential, it'll be fine. But I think there, there's, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm hot taking to say that, that these two, both of these two rosters uh, could use some upgrading. For the Bucks, it's more, uh, you know, it's more, more depth. Uh, Memphis has all the depth in the world, but they need, you know, I, th- I think they need. It's fair to say they need better wing play, uh, and 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 you know, kind of the the, the middle of the positional um, um, size range. So, um, kind of, how do you guys see it going forward? What are the options? What are the approaches the teams are taking to filling those holes or upgrading this offseason? Uh, start with you, Chris. You know, it's unclear to me how aggressive they're going to be this offseason. Um, clearly, you know, th- there's two big questions for the Grizzlies. One is the ultimate Jaron Jackson future positionally in terms of where the bulk, bulk of his minutes comes from. And the other is sort of on, you know, to, to your point, the sort of small forward position, generally bigger wing position. Uh, Dylan Brooks is a great defender. He's extremely erratic offensive player. His, 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 his balance between aggressiveness and efficiency is, is very out of whack. There's a real question about whether that's ever going to get in line. Um, they are very high on Zaire Williams, who, you know, their rookie this past season, a six nine wing who can sort of stretch the floor and, and, and has sort of horizontal and vertical spacing, but may be a few years away from really hitting his peak. And I think it's very unknown what that peak is going to be. I think if they're serious about, you know, maintaining contender status in the short term, the obvious space to go is to look for someone who can give them more size and more offensive punch in that small forward, you know, combo forward kind of position. If you imagine Kyle Anderson's minutes and role going to someone who can, who can, who can shoot, who can generate offense in the half court, who can play the four, you know, with Jaron Jackson at the five to close, to close, to close games. I, I think, you know, whether they can, they can add that puzzle piece this summer, it's, it's hard to say. I don't think they're going to do it in free agency, even though they could maneuver to get about 20 million in cap space. I think they have good trade assets, but I don't know that that player is out there for them to deal for. I think, you know, they're opportunistic, and if the right opportunity is there, that's the kind of player they need, a bigger wing who, who can generate offense for them. But I don't know that that player is going to be there for them this summer, and I don't think, to the point of the earlier conversation, they feel the pressure to get that player right now um, if it's not really there for them. Uh, this is a loaded question um, based on sort of private conversations, but Eric, uh, Dylan Brooks' thoughts? Just a spectacular player. Um, everybody loves Dylan Brooks. No, he, he's a, he's a winner. <laughs> Every, everyone knows he's a winner. He, Maybe not he's in San Francisco. A, 
<laughs> uh, no, Seth and I have joked many, many times about Dylan Brooks. Um, I do, I do like a lot of the um, effery uh, qualities that Dylan Brooks has. Not being afraid of any moment, and you know, really just like being down for for whatever you need. But also, I mean, he's been wildly inefficient and missed a bunch of shots, and maybe he should be a little bit more afraid of screwing up and certain moments offensively. I mean, one thing so, I'll say about Dylan Brooks is the offense detracts from what he does defensively. In these playoffs, he had great stretches guarding Steph Curry and guarding Carl Anthony Towns in, in the yeah. two respective series. Um, he is a, he is, he is in a, I don't know if he's elite, but he's a borderline elite defender who is quite versatile across multiple positions. And the Grizzlies have been pretty consistently better with him on the floor, despite the wildness of the offense. And so, I don't know if the Grizzlies are ready to like pull the plug on that. And, and I think it was notable in these playoffs that when he frustrated the most, it was when John Morant was not available. I think it's easier to put him in the proper place in offensive pecking order when John Morant is there to set the pecking order. No, that's, I mean, it's an interesting conundrum because as you say, he's a, a very valuable player in one aspect. And, you know, as they were like, he was, he was a little bit, you know, someone has to take these shots as they were kind of ramping up to be a, to becoming a better team. And now like they, those are shots they don't need anymore. So getting him to, to putting him in that different role and getting him to, you know, to, he wouldn't be the first person to, to chafe at a, at a shrinking offensive role. Even if, <laughs> if, if said shrinking role was, was to the betterment of the team. So that's, I mean, I think that's a, that is a challenge. Like the idealized version of him, you know, it was like a, the 22 usage version or something like that. Um, whether, whether that's something that is, that is accessible in Memphis, I think is an open question. Is, is that fair to say? Well, I, I think they were hoping to answer that question this season. And, and the problem they had was that Dylan Brooks and John Morant both had multiple injuries this season, but they alternated. They didn't overlap. And so the Grizzlies only played like 11 games out of the 82-game season with both of those guys available. Um, when the Grizzlies had their preferred lineup on the floor, uh, Morant, Brooks, Bain, Jackson, Adams, they were really good on the season. They didn't have that lineup available for a single possession against Golden State. Um, the evidence of Ja and of Ja Morant and Dylan Brooks together is quite strong. They didn't have a lot of time with it this season. I think if they had had 50, 60 games of that instead of 11, they would have a better sense of whether Dylan Brooks was going to fall into the proper pecking order offensively. I think that did not get fully tested this season, unfortunately. And that's always sort of uh, one of those things about injuries in a playoff run, especially is, is you, you not only do you lose because of it, but you, you lose on information. Um, let, let, let Eric, what Bucks roster, what happens? Where do, where do they go? Like, Athletic, I think we've talked about this offline enough that, like, you know, general depth, athleticism, maybe a little bit more ball in hands, a little bit wider spread of ball in hands creativity. All those things are, are kind of, um, I guess, on the table as possible needs. What do you think they perceive their, their biggest needs are and, and do they have the tools to address those? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think the the discussion of Dylan Brooks is actually nice for the discussion of the Bucks because, um, you know, I think a lot of the criticisms I've heard of the, of the Bucks offense 
and you know whether or not certain players are playable going forward and useful in the postseason um, changes significantly if they're not overextended in roles that they shouldn't be in, right? Like, I think Grayson Allen can look fantastic when he's the fifth option offensively. Um, when he's the third option and one of the only players that can get Giannis a dunk, well, you know, he's probably going to look like he's a little bit in over his depth. Like, that should not surprise people. It's the same thing with Bobby Portis. When Bobby Portis is allowed to catch, you know, wide open threes and get those looks up and, you know, even if there's a late closeout, still have enough space to do the little sidestep dribble and shoot a three, he's going to look good. When the Celtics are both running him off of that and the second sidestep look, then all of a sudden Bobby Portis isn't going to look as good. So I do think, you know, there's, I've received a lot of questions from Bucks fans about like, oh, you know, are these guys really postseason performers? And I do think they still are. Like, I do think Grayson Allen and Bobby Portis look considerably better if Chris Middleton is there. Does that fully, you know, change everything about the Bucks and their needs for the offseason? No. I still think, you know, we went into the season talking about how are they going to fill the P.J. Tucker role? And how are they going to do it in the bargain bin? And they took a number of swings in that bargain bin. They tried Shemi Ojale. They tried Rodney Hood. Uh, they tried Wesley Matthews. And ultimately, like, Matthews acquitted himself nicely, I thought. Um, I, was, I was a critic of the move, uh, both privately with Youssef and publicly uh, at The Athletic. And he ended up playing quite a bit better than, than I thought he would this late in his career. So uh, that is the reality of the Bucks, though. Like, they are going to have a taxpayer MLE to use, uh, and what they're going to be looking for is, unfortunately, the same thing the rest of the whole damn league is looking for. You know what the Bucks could use? A big I don't wing. Know, a big wing. <laughs> you, you know what all 30 teams could use? I don't know, a big wing. So that's where all of a sudden I, I think this becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh, and you have to start thinking about how do they do different things. You mentioned a little bit more creativity from the other offensive players. I think that would be, I think that would be quite helpful. And I think to me the thing I keep coming back to is that as an organization, they have to come to the realization that if you want a cheap big wing or a cheap secondary playmaker, the only place you can get it is in the NBA draft. And that is something that's really hard as a team that's pushing for a championship every year. That's really hard when, you know, you want this guy to be able to play in the postseason as well. Uh, it is going to require Mike Boonholzer to show trust in a player that he hasn't shown in a player like that since Dante DiVincenzo. I guess he was heavily involved in the DiVincenzo drafting process. So you have to get the, the buy-in has to be from the entire organization. But if you're talking about how you get a big wing or secondary creation and you do it for cheap, it isn't going to be your taxpayer MLE as badly as you want it to be. 
the taxpayer MLE is not enough to compete against the teams that can offer a real role for a player in that same situation or that has those same talents. You just don't have enough money. So you got to find a way to do it. To, to, to Aaron, go ahead. I was going to say to ahead, your Chris. point, that was exactly the Grizzlies front, front office rationale in trading up to the lottery last summer and, and you know, getting Zaire Williams. Maybe they were hoping, because they made the trade before draft night, maybe they were hoping Josh Giddy would be there or Franz Wagner would be there, but they wanted to get into a realm of the draft to get a big wing with the idea that the only way we're going to get this player may be to grow our own, that it's not going to come to us in free agency. It may not come to us in trade. And the best chance we're going to have to have a major player that in that position of that type is to get one in the draft and grow it. And that was exactly the Grizzlies rationale in moving up into, into the lottery last year. That's interesting. That's uh, that is a. I mean, that is a positional. That is a position of scarcity. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think though that um, there's another avenue, and I think kind of the Grizzlies have demonstrated this a little bit. I mean, you have the, there. There are players, playable players on the Grizzlies roster who, who you know, okay, if they were draft picks, they were second round picks. They were not lottery picks. I mean, you've got your, you know, your John Conchers, your your D'Anthony Melton, who was kind of a throw in in in, in, in another deal. Or I guess a, a financial move in another deal, if I remember correctly, to end up up there. I mean, there there is there is the ability to, and we're not. I mean, we're not necessarily talking about like a starting level player, but like, you know, it, can you can you can you heat culture your way to like a a second Pat Connaughton or something like that? Is 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 an, is another avenue, I would think. For sure, and I, I mean, it's honestly a good thing that, that I've. I'm happy that you brought up Pat because Pat's like a perfect example of it, right? Like the, maybe the greatest successes of that first off season was Pat Connaughton on a minimum and Brooke Lopez on the biannual exception. And both of those players are now foundational pieces to what the Bucks do. And they found them for cheap. And again, you know, it's a. I think things are a little bit different now because roles are so well established in Milwaukee. Like you, you have your core four of Giannis, Chris, Drew, and Brooke, and then you're going to have Bobby Portis. You're going to have Pat Connaughton, uh, and you're going to have probably Grayson Allen. Maybe that's a, a spot that some Bucks fans want to trade out of. But you have seven guys, and there's not like these open opportunities and open roles for players to really explore all the ways that they can become great players or become part of a foundation going forward. But, you know, that doesn't mean there's no opportunity. So I agree with you. You know, there is always, you know, kind of those avenues. The Bucks had a number of them work out in that way uh, in in those first couple of years. It, it's become harder in the last couple of years as they've solidified a number of roles in and try to look for other people. But like Bobby Portis is a good example, right? Like the Bucks signed him on a cheap contract two years ago. He ended up helping them win a championship and, you know, came back on another cheap extension. And I'm, I'm sure it ain't going to be cheap this summer. Uh, but that is, those are the, those are the plays that you're talking about, Seth. I mean, the, the Bobby Portis contract is, is going to be the full early birds amount. I think we're, we're, we're expecting that, but, just having right. having seen how these things work, but but yeah. So, but my I guess my question is: it, it almost seems like the, the the needs of the teams are are opposite. And Memphis has 
has a number of, of you kind of, you know, uh, uh, springier, younger players and possibly could use, you know, a little more consolidation and a little more solidness. And the Bucks, like, vice versa. And, and so there, there, there's an interesting dichotomy there. And it probably, it honestly, probably reflects the, as much where the teams are in their life cycle and that the Bucks, because they're there, they've been double, triple, quadrupling down on sort of vets. And Memphis hasn't really, like, been on the, been on the lookout for, for, for vets as a primary acquisition. Yeah, I mean, they made sort of a lateral move in that way from Jonas Valanciunas to Stephen Adams, but th- that was about, you know, that was about contract, that was about rerouting offensive touches, that was about moving up in the draft. You know, th- they they've let veterans go. They had Pat Beverly, and they, and they sent him away pretty much for nothing. You know, Eric Bledsoe, etc. Um, I think I think the Grizzlies. I don't get the sense they feel like you know that veteran presence is what they need. I, I think skill set stuff they need upside stuff they need i don't think they're going to have the notion of we need a veteran in this locker room that does not seem to me to be a driving goal uh, of the team necessarily i and i mean that that I, th- I think that's a good way of reframing it's more just like okay this is a guy who is going to he's going he's going to well and shoot 38 percent from three and he's going to do that 20 minutes every night and we don't have to think about that anymore um, it's just sort of those, those, those kind of, of, you know, the, the, the useful guys that, that seem to turn up on, uh, on playoff successful teams. Um, so, and the, the, I mean, those tend to be veterans just because, okay, this guy shot, you know, 38% from three for five years in a row. So we feel pretty confident in that. Um, but no, I don't, I don't disagree with you there. Um, Eric, do you, do you get any, any sense that there is, is, uh, a rec- is is there an agreement with my assessment that 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 like a bit more athleticism and and you know just, just young legs uh, are something that the Bucks could use even if it's just to kind of eat some regular season innings? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I do think there is organizational um, acknowledgement of of that problem. But there is also the the reality of, you know, like, well, you know, they would probably argue that they got a little bit younger with Grayson Allen, and Grayson is young and athletic, and uh, again, you I would probably put young in quotes um, for him. Same thing with Pat Connaughton, uh, and the same thing with Giannis. Like, all those guys are on the back half of young, uh, in starting to get into the seasoned area. Uh, but uh, ultimately, I think it all comes down to organizationally accepting the fact that those type of players are not going to immediately understand, uh, unless you know you'd draft a guy like Herb Jones, like I, I suggested last year, um, Unless you do something like that, that guy's probably not going to know defensive rotations inside out. He's not going to have the basketball intelligence to immediately step into and understand everything that you want to do offensively and defensively. Like there is going to be, uh, this is probably like the wrong term, but like there's going to be a little bit of babysitting. Like you have to accept some mistakes. You have to accept that it's not going to go perfectly for this guy 
to get that infusion of of athleticism and get that infusion of young legs. Uh, you just have to accept some of those things. And, uh, you know, for, for years now, the Bucks haven't really accepted that from their role players, that it's going to be, you know, you do the things that we need you to do correctly. And, and that's just how it goes. Or even, um, even in a guy like Tory Craig's case, it was, okay, well, you're a great defensive player, but like, we need you to just be able to do a little bit more offensively and that didn't work out or maybe you can be great defensively but you're not doing it great within our system so we don't accept that because you're not you know Drew Holiday or you're not Giannis Dedekumbo you can't play outside of the lines like you, there just has to be an acceptance of the fact that if you are going to get that infusion it's not going to be also within your exact set characteristics of character and intelligence and, and all those other things, like you have to accept that you're going to have to color a little bit outside the lines. To come back to a little full circle, uh, who, who's going to remember who colored outside the lines in game 12? Oh. Lost Eric there for a I second. I got you. Yeah. But you know, it's 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 a little the same thing, like a little of, of Giannis recognizing that. All right, the game twelve is a little bit of a get. Um, maybe game twelve is a little try some stuff. Also, like again, I'm not trying to um, you know disparage anyone, but like this was a season like we've never seen before, with COVID absolutely destroying rosters. And the Bucks got through it. Did they, did they enjoy the process? Maybe not. Did they enjoy the product that they put out on the floor all the time? Maybe not. But they got through it. They, they had to compromise what they do offensively and defensively in many of those games. And in the end, if Chris Middleton doesn't get hurt, they're still in a perfectly fine position to do it. So, like, if I'm the organization and I need to convince Mike Boonholzer of this or John Horst... I just say, like, you guys have been through it. You you can survive everything not going exactly how you mapped out for 20 games or for a 1,000 minutes while this per- player's on the floor for the season. Like, you can, you can get through this. Uh, and you can get through it because you've built this entire structure that makes sense. And, and I think that's... It, it's still, like, a hurdle for the team, but... I would hope that there is some recognition that they can get through it because they got through worse this past season. Well, we seem to have gotten through a lot of ground. That's a terrible segue. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Uh, we seem to have gotten through a lot of ground on on, on this pod. I've, I've kept you both for, for just under an hour, so kind of want to be mindful of your time and, and get you out of here soon. But it, like sort of any other any other thoughts, things that, that you would like to hit on on sort of how these teams are and should process, you know, their, 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 their playoff runs this year and their future. Well, for me, from the outside, I think if Chris Middleton doesn't get injured, Milwaukee has as good a chance as anyone to win the title and to repeat. Um, you know, if you go back in time and tell me he doesn't get injured, I'd probably pick Milwaukee to win the title. So I think Milwaukee is right there and, and they, no reason they won't be right there again, again, going into the next season. And so I think they built a sustainable contender. Maybe they only get one title out of that. That's more than most teams ever get. But they they get a chance to get another. And I think the Grizzlies, you know, on the on the on the early end of the same kind of arc, 
can look to that and to think, let's keep John Morant, Desmond Bain, and Jaron Jackson Jr. together, and we'll 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 play around that core every year for the next five to ten years, and we'll try to put our, ourselves in position to break through and win a title one of these years, and maybe more than one. I think Milwaukee's done that. They can do it again, and I think the Grizzlies can look to that as a model. Eric, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think again and again, I've, I've kind of believed this for years about the NBA, but I, I think all you can do going into any season is to put yourself in the collection of six to eight teams that actually have a chance to win a championship. And then from there, you have to hope that, you know, you probably get to the 50 percentile, like the top 50% of your outcomes just from a performance standpoint, and then you remain healthy and you come together at the right time. And that to me is, as Chris said, what the Bucks have built. And I mean, I'm not sure they're all the way there yet, but I think most people would put the Grizzlies in that six to eight heading into next season. And uh, to me, there's just, there's, there's always more you can do vital like roster construction is vital making the right moves is vital like adding to the the probability of your team getting all the way through all of that is something that every team needs to prioritize but if you're in that six to eight you've done your job and i think that's what you're going to see from from both of these teams heading into next season so it seems like uh the the overarching lesson is calm down which uh which i you know naturally uh, you know, I, I guess uh, uh, have affection for just because I think that the uh, as perhaps the the tone of of my introduction to this pod indicates, I find the the everything is terrible. They're done. The league has passed them by. They couldn't possibly win. <laughs> like it's just like yeah, they they couldn't possibly win until they could, and then so. Um, but yeah, I think that's a I, I think that's the right lesson to take. Is like hey, we're right there. Like there's tweaks to be made. We'll, especially on Memphis' side, we'll, we'll learn more. We have time to learn more. Uh, and, and, you know, as we learn more, we'll make the, the, you know, figuring out when we need to figure it out isn't, isn't the worst thing in the world. Like, they don't need to, Memphis doesn't need to build their, their three years from now championship team now. Okay. Well, Chris, Chris Harrington of the Daily Memphian, uh, Eric Dame of The Athletic, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, thanks, folks, for listening and, and, and bearing with us through some of our, uh, some of our, 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 our technical problems here. But uh, I thought this was a good discussion. I will be back tomorrow afternoon with a pod I've teased before and finally actually got on the schedule, uh, talking some basketball and some Australian rules football analytics with uh, Benuk Kandidawahu from uh, Kandidawaku from uh, – uh, from on under, um, we, we figured out a time zone that works at the time that, that works for, for both of us. So, uh, join me tomorrow evening for that. I am very interested to see where that goes. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, everyone and take care.